Welcome to Career Tipper Podcast, hosted by Michelle Beatty. The Career Tipper Podcast is a motivational resource that shares career and entrepreneurial tips by industry experts that will help amazing people evolve to their professional best. And now your host, Michelle Beatty. Episode 47 of the Career Tipper Podcast features Dr. Carlin Bersenko. Carlin is the force behind Zen Workplace. She's an organizational psychologist and executive performance coach. She is a leader in integrating mindfulness strategies at work to increase productivity and creativity, reduce stress, and create better work experiences. Her practice is based in the greater Boston area and serves clients all over the world. She holds an MBA and a PhD in psychology. And she is an experienced trainer and facilitator, coach, and award-winning speaker. Carlin is a contributor to Forbes.com and the author of Zen Your Work, Create Your Ideal Work Experience Through Mindful Self-Mastery. During this episode, Carlin will chat about office politics and the psychology behind the interpersonal aspects of the human workplace. She'll share insight on how to harness the power of relationships and influence to get more done, be more innovative, and rally your team to do amazing work. I'm your host, Michelle Beatty, professional development author and coach. Carlin, welcome to the Career Tipper Podcast. Thank you for having me, Michelle. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. So please share your journey that led you to starting and leading Zen Workplace. So I started Zen Workplace when I was working on my PhD, and it really just started off as a blog. I wanted to pontificate and just put out content and just see what happened with it. Uh, and over time, I, I published a whole ton of content, and I started getting people emailing me and asking me, well, do you do, you do this for organizations? Do you do that to or- for organizations? And of course, the answer was always yes. I know exactly how to do that. And so it grew over time and I actually did learn how to do the things that, that they were uh, hiring me to do and had a lot of great successes. But the, the purpose behind Zen Workplace was really I was having a tough time uh, at, when I was a younger professional about navigating the interpersonal aspects of the workplace. And I landed on this idea that if I could just accept who I was and the value that I brought to the table, that that would make things a lot easier. I wouldn't feel as competitive with people. And if I could understand my own work style and how I was making people feel, that would create a better experience for myself. So I started integrating that into the the writing I was doing, the work I was doing, uh, and it just grew from there. And that was my way of finding my personal brand of Zen in the workplace. I love it. Now, Carlin, let's dig into office politics because, my goodness, that's something that everyone can use a refresher on or insight about. And you have five office politic principles that you teach professionals on how to master office politics. So please share the first one. People are not logical and rational. Yes. And I start off with people are not logical and rational because I think people in the workplace, they desperately want their coworkers to be logical and rational and data-driven and just purely like non-emotional in their decision-making. But the reality is that we all instinctively know that's not true. I mean, we could all look at our own lives and probably look at the past week or so and say, have you done something completely illogical in the last week? 
Well, of course you have because we're human beings and our brains are not wired that way. The way our brains work is we are really, um, we're first interested in our survival. It tries to target things that are going to, you know, feed us and keep us sheltered and keep us alive. But the very next part of the brain, the next most powerful part of it is our emotions. And the reason that we don't think that we're making these decisions emotionally is because all of this is happening on a subconscious level. So all of our survival instincts, our brain constantly scanning our environment for survival and our emotional instincts, it's happening subconsciously. We're not aware of it. The only part of our brain that we're consciously aware of is the part that dictates logic and reason. And that's why we look to explain things. We look for patterns. However, in terms of influence on decision-making, what people really need to understand for office politics is that the logical, rational part of the brain is the weakest part of the brain in terms of influence on our final decisions. Our Our decisions are influenced much more by the emotional context of what's going on in our head and our ability to survive in the workplace. So am I going to keep my job? Am I going to keep my influence? Am I going to keep my power? Those sorts of things. And so here's the the big takeaway that I always try to get people to understand with principle number one is that human beings make decisions emotionally and then they justify them rationally. And we can all see this anytime we go into a meeting and we're trying to pitch an idea to the boss and we've done our homework and we've brought all the data and charts and it is completely logical idea to pitch. And the boss is like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this other idea because my best workplace friend wants to do that thing over there. That's not a logical decision. That's an emotional decision. And if we can wrap our heads around the idea that every single person we work with, their emotions are going to drive their decision-making first, that's when we can start to up our office politics game and gain more influence in our workspace. I love it. Now, the second one of the principles is relationships are your goal. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So if we accept principle number one, that people make decisions emotionally and justify them rationally, then we have to ask ourselves, how can we start to get at those emotional parts of the brain? And what it really comes down to is that you have to get other people to like you. And some people hate when I say this, it absolutely drives them crazy. They're like, no, I'm, I'm here for business. I'm not here to make friends. And that's absolutely the wrong way to go about it. Because whether or not people like you in a lot of cases is the beginning and the end of the ballgame. You know, there are different types of influence that you can have in the workplace. Um, the, the type of influence that most people default to, it has to do with where you are in the org chart right? What's your title? Who do you report to? Who reports to you? Who, who can you fire, essentially? If you, if you go to business school, they actually call that legitimate power in the workplace. But the problem is that, first of all, we don't work just in our silos, right? And so if you're going based on legitimate, quote unquote, power, then you're eliminating the idea that you can have influence over people that aren't in your direct reporting line. It's also really hard to change. You get into a job and you either have to get promoted or you have to convince someone to put you in a new job to change that type of power. So it's just not the best way to go about it. The next way you can have influence in the workplace is by being perceived as an expert in something. But perceived is the key word right? Because if someone, if you have a massive amount of expertise in a topic area, but people do not perceive you to have that expertise, then you will not be able to influence in that area. 
And the, the flip side to that is, you know, people can not know a lick about anything, but maybe someone perceives them to be an expert because maybe they said something at a staff meeting one time, all of a sudden that person can have influence in that area. The best example of this, and anytime I'm doing this at a conference, I I tell people don't raise your hand if your boss is in the room. But I ask the question, how many of you have ever had a boss that had no flipping idea what they were doing? And of course, a lot of people, you see their hands instantly shoot up and you know their boss is not in the room at that point. Um, but you know, I mean, the reason that happens is, is because someone perceived that person at some point to be an expert in what they hired them for. And it wasn't because they had the subject matter expertise. It was because they had the relationship with that person they liked them. And so if we can skip over all the rest of it and just create an environment or try to build those relationships with your coworkers where you have a cordial relationship, you're easy to work with. People want to follow you as a leader. People want to help you. They want to see you succeed. If you can hit on the like button, that's when you're going to be able to build the relationships that will allow you to have a lot more influence in your workspace. Thank you for sharing. That was great. Now, number three, people have a different natural tendencies. Yes. So if we, if we accept our first two principles and we say we get ourselves to a place where we're like, okay, people need to like me and we just accept that. The next thing we say is, okay, well, how do we build those relationships? Well, what you have to understand is that not everyone comes to work with the exact same work style. Some people like to work at a fast pace. Some people like to work at a slow pace. Some people like lots and lots of information and data. Some people just need those high-level bullet points. Some people are great collaborators. Some people like to shut themselves in their office with their headphones on and the shade drawn and not see another human being all day long. And there is is no such thing as a good or a bad work style. Every single work style, uh, it, it brings its own set of strengths and it brings its own set of challenges. And the more that we can really get to understand what the work styles are of our coworkers and what they're bringing to the table, that's when we can adapt to them. You know, there's an adage, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. Well, that only works if the people want the same things as you do. And statistically speaking, you know, at max, 25% of the population is going to want the same thing that you do. So we need to be more aware that other people might be different than us. Other people might want to go about things in different ways. And that doesn't make how we do things bad. It just means that we need to give a little and find a way to meet in the middle and find a way to empower them in, in what they want to do. That's how you build those relationships. Um, one of the key things that I think holds a lot of people back from really learning about their coworkers is email. Email is like the relationship killer in almost any office because people default to using email over any other type of communication. It's crazy. Now, I don't want to rag on email too much. I am a millennial. Like, I love technology. You will pry my cell phone out of my cold, dead hands. But (laughs) email is great for a couple things. It's great for scheduling meetings. It's great for passing documents back and forth. It's great for sending a quick note that says, I'll just be five minutes late. Please get started without me. But email is not great for anything that could be considered a human interaction because we've eliminated all tone. We've eliminated all nuance. You can't actually hear the person's voice. And so if people can just 
get off email and start actually talking to their coworkers, either on the phone, video chat, in person. God forbid they get up from their desks and go talk to people. You're going to learn a lot more about your coworkers and what they want and what they need and what they like. And it's going to help you build those relationships. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> now the fourth one, look for wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this is another part of relationship building is really looking for that win-win. And of all my principles of office politics, this is the one I get the most feedback on. And people are like, Carlin, it's so cliche to say, look for the win-win. We all look for the win-win all the time. And I have to call BS honestly. No, you aren't. And, and I know that because I do, I do a lot of work with um, resilient teams and assessing team resiliency and, and looking at like, how, how re- resilient teams are essentially. There are only, okay, only 1.6% of all the teams out there are highly resilient teams. 1.6%. All the other teams, they're in various stages of evolving resiliency. Now, why is this important for win-wins? Well, the biggest trait that sets a highly resilient team apart from just every other type of team is that coworkers are willing to proactively give their resources to another person just because they're being helpful. They're proactively looking for those win-wins without being asked. So anyone who's listening to this that says, I always look for the win-win, give yourself a hard look in the mirror because there's probably more you could be doing unless you are part of the 1.6% of the teams that do this really, really well. And so what does it mean to look for a win-win? Essentially, what I mean when I say that is we have to come back to a place where we're learning how to compromise again. The idea of a compromise is that you are giving up some of what you want to empower someone else. It really is that simple. But we all, I mean, especially in today's climate, we want to dig our heels in and say, no, I want 100% of what I want, no matter what that means for my ability to succeed or how people feel about me. But what people need to understand is that it is better every single day of the week to get 70 or 60 or even 50% of what you want and to give someone else a win than it is to get 100% of what you want and piss someone else off because people hold that in their back pocket for years just waiting for a chance for retribution. Like you didn't give me that thing. So I'm not going to give you this thing. And it just spirals out of control. Um, one of the, the best talks, and I was so surprised that this was a good talk, uh, is I was at South by Southwest last year, and I went to see um, Arnold Schwarzenegger talk about, you know, what his time as governor in California. And I was like, really not expecting much out of this talk at all. I just wanted to make my husband jealous because he really likes Arnold and I wanted to take a picture and send it to him. But like, that guy is smart. I, did, I have never given him enough credit. Um, and he, one of the things he talked about was he brought all of the, the stakeholders um, that were working on healthcare in California together in one room to try to fix healthcare. And he said to them at the very outset of the meeting, he said, not a single one of you should expect to walk out of this room with a 10. The best thing that could happen is that every single one of you walks out of this room with a 7. Because if you walk out with a 10, that means that guy over there is walking out with a three and then the whole thing falls apart. 
And so we have to reframe our expectations about what success looks like. Because if your only method of success is you get all the wins and only you get all the wins, then you are missing the bigger picture. So always be looking for ways to empower other people, support other people, even if it requires you to to give up a little bit of what you want. That's what principle number four is all about. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. Oh, that was good. Okay. The Mm -hmm. fifth principle is possibly maybe maybe equally as important as the fourth one that you just shared. Pick your battles. Yes. That's yes, huge. Oh my God. People <laughs> people think that they need to win like all the arguments on the internet. Like you're never going to win all of the battles and you're going to expend a lot of energy trying to win all the battles when when not all of them are even they even have a point to them. Um, you know, political capital in an organization is not finite. Like you're never going to run out of your ability to influence in your organization. However, it is fluid. And if you spend all of your energy fighting the battles that don't matter in the grand scheme of things, you're not going to have any left over for fighting the battles that do matter. And people get, when people, especially when they get stressed out, they get focused in on these little nitpicky things that really don't make a difference. Um, I mean, I do, I do a lot of work in um, like higher education. I, I spent a lot of time like around higher education marketers and like nothing pisses off a higher education marketer more than when a faculty member makes a Twitter account to promote their program, a rogue Twitter account or a rogue Facebook page. And I'm just like looking at them, like this person has like three followers no one's ever going to see what they're tweeting. Like no one cares. There's no one paying attention to it. And yet you're expending all your energy trying to fight this tenured professor to get them to delete the Twitter account. It just doesn't make sense. And so we have to start. But, and, you know, people do that because there, there are bigger battles to fight, but those battles seem like overwhelming they seem like insurmountable. And so people go for the things that they think they can win. But you have to be smart about it and, and pick your battles that are ones that you can, that you can create coalitions around, that you can get people on your side over. Um, it takes longer to do that stuff, but man, your people are going to respect you so much more when they see you focusing on that bigger picture. And that's when you're going to be able to influence in the future. Oh, thank you. Now, Carlin, you're the author of Zen Your Work. So create, and that's what, creating your ideal work experience through mindful self-mastery, which I think is so huge. I think it's a constant work in progress for everyone and kind of taps into emotional intelligence a little bit. Yes. So please share a glimpse of the psychology and mindfulness techniques that will guide professionals in overcoming obstacles and challenges of the modern office, decrease stress, and achieve their personal goals. Yeah, so so I started um, the principles that I talk about in Zen Your Work. It really all started for me in in the last job before that I had before I went to do Zen Workplace full time, and I was working in a horribly toxic organization. It was really really bad. I mean, everyone was upset and pissed off. Like I was constantly getting thrown under the bus. My boss wasn't supporting me. I didn't have the resources I need. I couldn't get anything done. And essentially, what happened is I, I ended up going on vacation. I went on a cruise. And so I didn't have access to the internet for like a week. And so I had a lot of time to think. And what I came up with in that time was that I had no control over what other people said or did or how they chose to act. I could only control myself. 
and I could only control my mindset and my perspective. And so when I got back, I started refocusing my efforts to just what can I control in this situation? How can I define success in this situation? What is my win in this situation? And I basically came up with and combining um, everything I had learned when I was doing my PhD with uh, some mindfulness techniques to be able to make a better experience for myself in this really toxic environment, no matter what anyone else said or what anyone else did. So the way I define mindfulness, when most people say mindfulness, they're, they're, they usually mean something like meditation. And I think meditation is great. I think everyone should do it. I do it for half an hour to an hour every single day. So I'm a very big fan. But my book is not about meditation. Because meditation is like step 12. And there's a lot of people who, who want to be able to do some of this stuff that simply are not inclined to meditate. And that's got to be okay. So how I defined it is really three things. Being aware, being non-judgmental, and being in the present moment. So awareness is about what's going on in your head. What is the inner dialogue you're having about whatever situation you're in and how can you change it so that it's going to be to your best advantage? How can you really start to take control of the emotions that you're experiencing so that you can make sure they're the right emotions, they're positive emotions, they're emotions that make you feel good, that sort of stuff. Um, also being aware of the context that you're operating in and what other people are, are bringing to the table and we get into work style and all that stuff, how to understand different work styles, how to heal the different work styles. Um, number two, being non-judgmental, is this idea that when things happen to us, we instantly want to judge them as being good or bad. And if they're good, we try to run towards them. But if they're bad, we either try to fight them or run away from them. But most of the time, things just are. They're not necessarily good or bad until we assign that meaning to them. And so say something happens, say, say you want to do a project and you don't get the budget to do your project. You might instantly say, that's bad. And you're either going to try to fight it or you're going to say, there's no point in this. I just give up. But what if instead you said, okay, well, how might this be good? I'm not, I'm not going to judge it as bad right away. How could this be my greatest benefit? Does it free me up to do other projects? Does it, does it get something off my plate that wasn't going to be successful anyway and was just going to be a fight? Does it open the door to me pursuing other ideas that I hadn't considered before? Is this project really dead or do I just need to bring it back at a later date and make the argument again? So instantly you've taken what is a bad situation and you've said, okay, there's a lot more opportunities here than maybe I originally thought. And you set yourself up to do something that's much more productive for you. So that's non-judgment. And lastly, being in the present moment. Um, and this is particularly true when it comes to difficult people that we all hate working with. <laughs> and so, so where does that come from? It's like someone does something months ago at a staff meeting to piss us off or, or like tries to throw us under the bus of the project and we hold it in our back pocket. And now every future interaction that we have with that person, we're expecting something bad to happen. But the reality is that that person might not have meant anything by it. That person may not have had any negative intent at all. People are very, very selfish. We think that every time something happens to us, that a person's purposefully trying to be evil to us. But most of the time, like it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with what's going on with them. And maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they've got stuff going on that you don't know about. So, um, so being in the present moment is about saying, you know what, what has happened in the past 
it's in the past. I can't do anything with it. I can't go back and change it. The only thing I can do is move forward. And when you do that, you free yourself up to create more opportunities with people, with projects, with your workplace, with that sort of stuff. But people have to start letting go of all these grievances because literally the only person they are hurting by holding on to these grievances is themselves. They're not helping themselves at all. Um, so that's kind of an overview. And, and the book goes much more in depth into, into different areas, everything from being more confident to how to work with the really evil people um, to building better relationships and even finding work-life balance and that sort of stuff. So I'm pretty proud of it. Awesome. And congratulations on that. That's awesome. Thank you. Now, you've shared great and easy implement action steps to mastering office politics. What's one thing, Carlin, that you encourage the listeners to be mindful of when practicing self-mastery to overcome toxic environments? Mm Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is just focusing on what you are contributing to the situation without trying to control what other people are contributing to the situation. So it's, it's not fun to work in a place where you hate your boss or, you know, maybe they're a narcissist or a bully, or you have really evil coworkers that you're working with. And I don't want to discount that. It is a, it is a really difficult thing to go through. But if you put your energy into trying to change them, you're going to be unsuccessful. Because first of all, it's not your job to change them. People don't want to hear that, but it's not your job to change them. It's not your job to teach them a lesson. It's not your job to show them the error of their ways. That is their thing to figure out. The only thing that you can really have influence on is what you're doing in the situation. And so the the example I give of um, when people are working with really evil people is that, you know what, like think think of that person that like you just can't stand right now. I know all your listeners are going to zero in on one person. They've already got it in their head right now. And now what I want you to do is think of, think of essentially a person that is like in an insane asylum, literally in a straitjacket, looking really crazy. That's obviously a really broken person. Okay. So think of that person. Now, if that person was the person that like you have an issue with, if they looked like that, the crazy person in the insane asylum, how would you speak to that person? You're probably going to speak a little bit more carefully to that person. You're not going to be aggressive with that person. You're not going to take anything that person says seriously about you because really they're a crazy person in an insane asylum. You're not going to try to get into a battle with that person. Um, You probably are going to be more empathetic towards that person. Okay. So what, but what people need to understand is those crazy people, those toxic people that drive you nuts, they are the crazy person in the insane asylum. Because how we treat other people is a very real reflection of what's going on inside us, how we feel about ourselves. And the people that are really toxic in organizations, they have low self-esteem. They probably don't feel great about themselves. They probably feel like nothing I ever do is good enough. I constantly have to prove myself to other people. They may look very buttoned up on the outside and have this shirt and tie and the perfect haircut and the perfect car and all these things, but that doesn't mean that they're okay on the inside. And if you can learn to reframe them and look at them in a different way, that can help create change the working relationship. But notice in this example, I haven't asked you to change them at all. I've only asked you to change the story you're telling about them. 
And if people can learn to do that, that's part of what, of what taking responsibility for your work experience looks like, is, is learning how to navigate these situations, looking at what you're contributing rather than worrying about everyone else. High five. High five, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Carlin, please finish these sentences. A strong, productive mindset is? Is one in which you are focused on the things that you can control and the things that make you, you feel really, really great. My favorite snack is? Favorite snack is, oh, you know what it is right now? It's caramelized pecans from Whole Foods. Oh my God, they're so good. (laughs) Sounds yummy. Okay, the time snatcher I aim to avoid most. Okay, this is going to surprise people for someone who wrote a book called, like, with Zen in the title, but the the time snatcher that I try to avoid most is arguing with people on the internet, because I love it. I love it. It's just so fun, but it's awful, and I know it's awful, and it's a guilty pleasure, and I really should not do it all that much. (laughs) My goodness. Okay, and my hype song is... I don't know that I would say I have a hype song. I think I've been I've been in a constant battle with my co my favorite coach at Orange Theory to get him to play more Bon Jovi. So I'm seem to be on a Bon Jovi kick lately. So anything by like old school Bon Jovi with the hair, yes. <laughs> awesome, awesome, Carlin. I appreciate you being a guest on the Career Tipper podcast, and we end every every episode with the guest sharing their favorite quote or affirmation that keeps them creating career tipping moments. So, what's yours? So, the what I actually have on um, my desktop wallpaper, it just says, "I am enough," and I think that that's really perfect. For everyone, just know that you are perfect just the way you are. You don't need to change for anyone, and you probably have everything you need right in front of you right now to achieve whatever your goals are. So, I am enough. I am enough. Awesome. Okay, so tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, they can find me over on zenworkplace.com. They can find me on Twitter at Dr. Carlin B, uh, and also on LinkedIn and all the other social media. But those are the, the two that are the easiest. Fantastic. And you can find me, Michelle Beatty, at careertipper.com and on Facebook and Instagram at careertipper and Twitter at careertipper1. Please listen and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the Career Tipper podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Career Tipper podcast. We're grateful for our listeners and guests. For more resources about how to evolve to your professional best, share your comments and feedback about this episode and your suggestions for future guests, visit careertipper.com. Until next time, be confidently you.